Today on CityCast Las Vegas, I chat with Scott Dickensheets, our newsletter dude, (laughs) and my co-host David Figler for our Friday News Roundup. We're going to chat about why Vegas keeps getting labeled a cesspool of crime. Michael Heiser's city, a mega sculpture in the middle of the desert, and Lake Las Vegas, Henderson's number one commercial water user. It's Friday, August 26, 2022. I'm Vogue Robinson, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. Good morning, Scott and David. How are y'all this morning? Doing waveringly great or less great. <laughs> That's a range. Hey, hey, y'all. I'm 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 okay. I, I had this weird feeling that Las Vegas, and pardon the word choice, might be kind of back to normal. Oh, weird. Right? It it just seems like things are wild and monsoony <laughs> and like everything is happening here or nothing's happening here. It just seems kind of back to the old ways, back which I'm way. not saying is particularly great, but but here we are. are back. Here we, here we are. are. Right. Yeah, this is kind of a, a neutral week. Interesting. I don't know if it's been neutral for me, but oh. I know today, you know, on our list of subjects to go over today, I feel like the thing that keeps happening is we keep getting called a cesspool of crime. So that is <laughs> par for the course. Uh, so I want to talk about that. I want to talk with y'all about this Michael Heiser piece, this thing in the middle of the desert that this man has been making for 50 freaking years. cesspool of art. cesspool of art. Hmm. Maybe. <laughs> and then I would love to talk to y'all about uh, Lake Las Vegas, which is reported as Henderson's biggest commercial water user. Uh, and also just kind of like your memories around Lake Las Vegas, because I'd love to know more about it. So, yeah, those are our subjects today. Let's start off with the cesspool uh, of crime. <laughs> I was like, "It's a term of art, isn't it?" Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> cesspool expert David Figler. Bum bum bum. Well, we, this this term uh, was hoisted upon us uh, recently by a a certain ex president uh, who was, uh, I I think, trying to help out the candidates that he was with. Um, both of whom have been involved in law enforcement in Las Vegas, one of whom is running for governor, who is in charge of law enforcement in Las Vegas, uh, Joe Lombardo. And right to his face, this former president uh, said, you got your problems here. Las Vegas is accessible of crime. And awkward. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a little awkward, right? It's very strange. I feel like that's... I don't know. I'm tired of hearing that. And also I wonder, like, how founded is that that piece of rhetoric? Well, I mean, our governor uh, incumbent uh, immediately jumped on with an ad saying, you know, hey, my opponent's own guy is blaming him for all the crime that we have. And then uh, the sheriff said, well, the only reason that we have all this crime is because of the governor and his liberal policies, which have made pro-crime policy and anti-cop. And so now there's all this pushback, and this is back in the news again. So are we or are we not a cesspool? And what does the data say, Scott Dickensheets? Well, David, from what I've read... um, 
we've been in terms, at least in terms of violent crime, we've been trending downward since like 2018. Although the cesspool could have risen or lowered <laughs> since I last checked. I mean, cesspool makes me want to do that weird voice, which I promise you guys, I'm going to stop doing that voice oh, now. Lord. But yeah, it's um, property crime is a little up. Violent crime is mostly down. Yeah. This is kind of the trend. Uh, you could look at these stats from when Lombardo took over as sheriff before. We're a big city and we have crime. And I, I don't know what makes a cesspool per se. I don't know. It's interesting. Like, okay, so Joe Lombardo is the current sheriff, right? And so Correct. he and his representatives get to go and and, you know, speak up for or against certain pieces of legislature that any of like if a governor says, OK, I want to create this legislature, they can say yes or no or put their votes in. And I feel like what I was reading in the Nevada Independent article was that several times all of these soft on crime um which is a garbage expression, by the way. <laughs> right. I'm just going to say that right These now. These soft on crime bills that were being implemented were uh, either they voted neutral or they they had some discussion and made some concessions and then voted yes. So it's like if you're neutral or voting yes, then you are part of this problem that you're saying exists in our city about being soft on crime. Well, it, it looks like this, right? There's there's two two sides of it. One is, is there a correlation between, for instance, this legislation, which uh, we can call AB 236, this was something that happened in the last session, uh, which was at the invitation of the prior governor, uh, mm -hmm. who was a Republican, who asked for a, uh, a respected entity to come in back in 2018. They're called the Crime and Justice Institute. They're out of state. They came in. They looked at the stats that were available here. Uh, and they were like, oh, wow, you guys are doing some things that are really not so good. So the question is, is there a correlation between these reforms and more crime? And I would say, no, there is not. But on the other side of it, have we been doing things in a way that are through law enforcement in general that are not necessarily keeping us safer or driving down the numbers of crime. And if we are, are we doing it at a cost of impacting, oh, let's say communities of color in a disproportionate fashion? Uh, spoiler, yes. Or, yeah. You know, and so what is that balance? And so, you know, a lot of that kind of comes up in these legislative sessions. At the end of the day, just like you said, Vogue, uh, the police were heavily, heavily, heavily involved in the lobbying efforts. If the original report from this CJI was to be, if it were to be implemented as as it was, we would be looking at almost a completely different criminal justice system in Nevada. That did not happen. What's a what CJI? did happen? Oh, that was the Criminal Justice Institute that I just, cr uh, Crime and Justice Institute that uh, I just referenced. Okay. So they were the, the body from that was commissioned basically by Governor Sandoval to come in and take a look at our system and make some recommendations. And so there was some opposition. Also, I would, I would note that there's probably a difference between crime stats and just like the ambient feel of a community. And, you know, if you, if you dip your toe into nextdoor.com, sometimes it seems like the world oh, is ending. Oh, Lord. Um, everybody, everybody is tracking the strange, you know, black vehicle that drove into the cul-de-sac and paused for 10 seconds, you know, and, and, you know, the police have been notified and that, that all of that just like, it's like boiling a frog, you know, you, the temperature seems to keep rising on the rhetoric or on the, 
and the feeling, but I don't know that that's actually borne out in in the stats. So, and, and just like personal anecdote, my grandkids' like scooter has sat out on the sidewalk in front of the house for like a week now. Nobody's taking it. Mm. It's just sitting there begging to be stolen. <laughs> ain't nobody. And what's that address? In that cesspool of crime. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so let's shift gears. <laughs> to things, other things in the middle of the desert other than our beautiful city. Uh, And that is literally a piece of art by Michael Heiser called City. Now, I know, I feel like, Scott, you've got like the highest level of fascination, I think, or like deep diving into this subject. So do you want to give us kind of the a little bit of the backstory of this 50-year project? Uh, Well, the first thing to know is that Michael Heiser is... He's been out of the the limelight for a while, but he is a a super prominent Nevada artist. He's done a lot of things here. A lot of people probably have heard of, you know, his his thing, Double Negative, out by Moapa. But he's done a number of of projects that are significant in art, in land art history here in Nevada. And before that, he had a, you know, he had a a career in in the New York art world and so on. So he's not just some guy who appeared out of nowhere. (laughs) With this thing, <laughs> I think I saw an Instagram seemed... post that was like some guy built a city in the middle of it, and I was like, "That is not some guy." <laughs> he just showed up. How long ago? He just popped what, up like ten minutes, and he was fifty out years there with his shovels and pickaxes all by himself, and he built a city. And it's like that's definitely not how it was built. But yeah, so what's what's the span of this thing? Yeah, it's like a mile and a half long and about a half a mile wide from everything I've read about it, and it's just this this series of plazas and berms and mounds and divots and, you know, concrete shapes all arranged in some, you know, in some fashion, you know, the, the Heiser devised for, you know, a lot of different engineering and architectural reasons. The thing to me to think about when, or one thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about this is this is not a thing that can, that you can like sort of like frack for content. It's not, it's not sending a message, really. It's the message is the experience of being there. From everything I've read about, it. I have not been there. Caveat that, yeah. but I've read a lot about it, and it's really about angles and sight lines, and you know the, the massive engineering and you know ceremonial space. His father uh, was a noted uh, archaeologist, and so um, so Heiser has this sensibility of you know, ceremonial space that he's he's seen in, you know, sort of ancient ancient sites and so on. So he's trying to evoke ultimately a sense of awe at the through the use of scale and sight lines and so on. And I just find that really fascinating that it's you know, the basic foundation of art is light falling on an object mm. that you can mm. see. And he all of his principles sort of operate at a level like that. It's all about the sight lines and the feeling that's evoked by it, but it's not about trying to read it for a message, which I think is how a lot of people view art these days. And so they're probably scratching their heads like, What's what does this point? thing mean? What does it mean? And then also, it, what does it mean? if it doesn't mean anything, like, oh, you built something for like $40 million to say nothing on ancestral Nuwu grounds? <laughs> it doesn't say, it, I mean, it's not, you know, land art is not necessarily always about saying something. It's about the experience of being in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like, you know, like, a poem or a piece of abstract art, it's not, you can't extract an A, B, C kind of message from it. It's the experience is the meaning. And I think that's what it's meant to evoke just on a super massive scale. Mm-hmm. And again, like he went, he, with his father, the archaeologist, he went to a number of like, you know, ancient 
ceremonial site. So he has this sensibility of trying to evoke that same feeling that that those spaces do. But yes, your your reference to the uh, to the ancestral home of the Nulu is not, you know, an irrelevant concern. Fifty years ago, when he started this thing, these sort of massive, you know, interruptions of the earth were sort of like what the mainstream of land art is. Land art as a genre has kind of moved mm-hmm. on. It's moved on to more like, you know, highlighting the, the fragility of the earth and the and the you know, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But Heiser is really concerned with with time on a on a much longer scale than that. And so, fifty years ago, what he's doing was in the mainstream. Now there are all kinds of concerns that people are raising about whether it's you know colonial colonialism, whether it's an old white guy sort of etching his privilege into the desert, and so on. Who knows where the yard, where the goalposts are going to be in another fifty years, mm. and then a hundred years after that, he's he he intends this thing to have a super long life cycle. And so the principles he's used, which are all, all about engineering and angles and math, mm-hmm. are sort of constant no matter what the shifting, you know, social view of it is. And I agree, those are legitimate questions. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm 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 eager to see mm-hmm. it. I'm open to either being awed by it <laughs> or, or disappointed. disappointed by it. And I and I am not at all dismissive of those concerns. You know, would a woman have been given this level of resources to create this thing would a you know an artist of color yeah for sure i don't know what are your thoughts david i i enjoy traveling our state there are a lot of very unique both natural and human made uh structures throughout the desert the desert seems to invite it in a lot of ways and i would say beyond inviting it challenges mm-hmm. you because of its you know harsh landscapes uh, to to make art thrive in sometimes the most desolate of places, and I'm specifically thinking of uh, Goldwell outside of Rhyolite, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which is a fun destination, but also like wow, you know, this is really this is really isolated and intriguing um, that this kind of art is being experienced in this sort of way, and and so I can appreciate that, but I've also been looking at the criticisms. Uh, it, through the modern lens. And it is also interesting about the kind of person that he is, about his approach to humanity, uh, about uh, the degree of, of privilege to to kind of do a project like this. But, you know, then again, there's other people who are like, wow, that was a lot of money for something that looks like a giant little Zen garden that you have in on your desk where you... That's you, the thing I love kinda... the most about it. Like, yeah. when I fly away from town, and I'd hate to leave, but, like, when I'm flying away, I love looking... Like, my favorite view of life is looking out of an airplane window. And so seeing, like, the topography, if you will, like, seeing how the world looks from that bird's eye view, I think is, like, the most interesting thing. I was like, oh, God, like, this is always living art. And so, okay, now this this piece has been erected. Um, I think it's cool that it was created. Um, I think it's like admirable to spend that much time on the same piece <laughs> and just plod through it. And obviously he didn't do it, you know, just by hand, but there were multiple tools and other people, you know, involved in the creation of the work. I think it is, there's something to be said or to be questioned about you've studied, you know, you worked with your father and you studied archaeology. And so you're inspired by, you know, Mayan and Aztec and other types of of ruins, if you will. Mm -hmm. And those were all things that were created with a particular purpose. Like, yes, experience the grandeur, but also uh, this is for whatever deity they were um, worshiping and things of that nature. So, But all these things had a particular purpose. 
Um, I think you should be able to create art for art's sake. It's just one of those things where like some of the the lineups of this area was a conservation area. Okay, now this is going to be a thing that's going to attract tourists. Uh, it seems like he wasn't going, he didn't want to actually open it yet. <laughs> like I guess in 2020, it was supposed to be open. Yeah, they've they've dragged it out. And they're only letting, I think it's like something like six people a day go visit. So it's not going to be overrun with tourists. And, and it costs $150 to I was just going to say, and, and then you're charging $150 to go and see this thing. Um, where does that money go? I wonder, like, is that for maintaining it and keeping staff? Um, should it have been free? Is it free to people whose ancestral lands that's on? Like, those are kind of other ways I think you could balance out what I think it looks like is happening, which is one guy decided to make his mark and then you have to come and see his mark, but it's on government land that is concerned. No, no, it's not. No, that's, oh. it's it's his it's, land. Oh, he owns no, the shut land. up. They, But it's, wait, so how and there's does he preservation own it, around it? There's, there's a whole thing. So they actually passed some laws to preserve areas around, if I'm not mistaken, Scott. Yeah, the the, base, the Basin and Range National Monument. Uh, one of the reasons, according to what I've read about it, is that Harry Reid, one of the reasons Harry Reid pushed uh, President Obama to create the Basin and Range Monument was not only to preserve a lot of the, uh, you know, there's petroglyphs and other culturally sensitive artifacts in that area, but also to prevent you know, sort of federal interference or whatever from uh, from messing with huh. the city. They, they really didn't leave a lot to chance. I mean, this was a very expensive, decades-long endeavor. And, you know, this, this individual, uh, this artist, you know, absolutely knew how to utilize the system. Also, to your question, Vogue, I think they are thinking about, uh, or there is a discussion of uh, pricing uh, in, in, and indeed, allowing free access to indigenous people and people who reside in nearby counties, mm -hmm. I think as well, uh, yeah. out, not Clark County, because, you know, we're going to pay. But I think if you're in Lincoln or White Pine or something, you might be able to get in there. Yeah, I think if you're near it, some kind of, you know, just like the same kind of perks we, we give for other cool things in our surrounding areas. These are my feelings. Uh, what's also interesting is that the New York Times, like this is national news, okay? And I searched this morning and could not find a local um, news outlet that was covering this piece. What is up? <laughs> Why? In the in defense of the Sun, they did run the New York Times story, so <laughs> they offered it to their readers okay. in that fashion. Well, that's um, nice. As to why it broke in the New York Times and not a local paper, I think that's kind of obvious. It's, you know. If you've been working for fifty years on something, you want to, you want to go wide with it right mm. out, right out of the gate, and True. you're going to make a bigger splash in the Times than you are in, you know, in, in the RJ. But also, I mean, I think it says something about our local media in the sense that who are they going to send? Like, who at, <laughs> at any of the papers have any, you know, sort of working knowledge about this kind of stuff? You know, the papers have sort of looking at their metrics. By the way, have mm. sort of divested themselves of critics. Of all of all the arts, um, they've determined that there's not a readership for it. So, who on the staff of either the papers or whatever is is going to be out go or out the TV stations or the TV stations who, you know, is going to go out there and be able to make sense of it on any level of the, that you can't do just from you know a press release. So, mm -hmm. and I think that's I think it's a shame because arts coverage used to be sort of a mainstay of local journalism, but they have decided that there's just not enough. They, it doesn't get enough clicks or enough hits, so they've all sort of like let go of all their their 
you know, critical duties. So let's talk about Lake Las Vegas. Uh, so I know that it was reported as Henderson's biggest commercial water user, but I feel like every year there's a report that comes out that says who the major water users are, and it it's starting to get murky. Like, I don't feel like I actually know. What do y'all think about this subject? Well, I mean, the funny thing about this report is that in the previous year, which was 2020, because of the of the shutdown, the casinos dropped off the top of the of the water user list and were replaced by golf courses. Now that things are back in gear, the casinos are at the top again, for the most part, except mm-hmm. except Lake Las Vegas, which is the big dog. It, using like in 2021, I think it was like 1.3 billion gallons of water, and and you know they and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the Lake Las Vegas people say they're working on you know conservation efforts and so on to you know, to help mitigate that a bit. So, but that's sort of where Lake Las Vegas, you know, sort of stands on that list. All right. Because I'm looking, I'm like, yeah, it's like, okay, on the list right now for commercial water users in 2021, it's like Venetian, Mandalay Bay, and then Caesars. And then on the residential water users, it's like a couple of different communities, Spanish Gate Holdings. I don't know where that's at, but they're they're holding all the water. And then commercial water users in Henderson 2021, you have Lake at Las Vegas. I told you guys I'm going to ask you this. I live in North Las Vegas. I think I've been to Lake Las Vegas once, but it could have been Lake Mead. Like, I literally do not know. The t- I don't count it. This, these are not beaches, y'all. But I'm just like, oh, what no, is this? You wouldn't this? miss it. It's okay. some sort of faux Mediterranean master plan monstrosity. I mean, you're not going to. If you were there, Vogue, you would know you're there. And look, and again, all I'm doing is like just crapping on people's lives. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> there are very lovely people who have very lovely homes uh, some very lovely McMansions, some very lovely mansions uh, out in the Lake Las Vegas area. It was, it's a total Vegas story, man. It, it, some guy had a dream in 1967 and held on to the land forever and then lost his dream and someone else took it over and a bunch of billionaire investors came in and they're like, we're going to change the game and we're going to fill up this reservoir with all the water and we're going to build golf courses and high-end like hotels and casinos and make a whole new world out in Lake Las Vegas, which is such a great name. So innovative. And so far from Las Vegas. And so far from Las right, Vegas. I was and like, the it's recession so far. hits and it just goes into bankruptcy. And like that entire community is just littered with bankruptcy stories and investors losing it all and people losing their homes and foreclosures oh. and come back and not so much. And what became a was a Ritz Carlton then was like a Westin or a, a Hilton, or I don't even know. There were like three resorts out there. It's very confusing. There's lots of empty storefront out there. It's like I said, a faux Mediterranean. Uh, it, think Tivoli uh, Village, uh, which is over on the west side, mm-hmm. done like a hundredfold. And with all the, I'm going to just use the word, uh, I don't want to. Trappings. <laughs> it has all the trappings. Trappings, good. I was going to use cheese. Um, trappings, all the trappings of that kind of thing. And, you know, I know some people live out there. Um, they enjoy it. It is quite beautiful. It's really close to Lake Mead. It is scenic. It is under our beautiful desert sky. There's lots to love there, I'd imagine, but it also seemed to be a mess of an idea from the beginning. And I'm not surprised that it's on the water useless in that negative connotation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Scott, what are your thoughts? 
I remember back in the in the mid '80s when I worked for the no longer existing Henderson newspaper. I was covering Henderson Planning Commission, and this thing came up, and I'm like, "That'll ah, never fly." I mean, even though the town was 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 definitely willing to prostrate itself before any developer, I thought that just that just seems like too grandiose, too pie in the sky for for what I thought was possible in, in Henderson. I, and time proved me wrong, as it has uh, so often has. But I remember, you know, that location when I was when I was a young man, and I hung out hung out with some, let's say, boisterous fans of the Second Amendment. Uh, <laughs> they would go out to that right about where that turnoff is to into Lake Las Vegas, and that's where they'd shoot. And you know, they, they filled those hills with with lead, and then so for it to go, you know, so far in the opposite direction as to be sort of the entry into this, you know, this luxury development where. Whenever I go out there, I feel like I should probably, I don't know, like show them my bank statement to prove I belong. Um, <laughs> Do you belong here, sir? Show us your bank statements. Um, you're driving a Fiat, sir. I don't think you're uh, right for our development. So, mm. uh, um, so anyway, I, I always thought it was you know, doomed to failure, and um, but there it is. Yeah. Well, and just the audacity of putting a giant man-made lake next to the world's largest man-made lake uh, for, you know, sport and pleasure in the middle of the desert. And while, you know, the, the water uh, concern probably wasn't as high back when this project started as it is obviously now, it still is kind of an affront to, it's both an affront and embrace of, of the generic Las Vegas ethic of nothing's too stupid or too big to give it a shot. Right. And if it doesn't work in its first iteration, maybe it will in its next. That's the story of progress. Yeah, that's the story of progress. I mean, it is definitely representative of a way of thinking, a way of developmental thinking. uh, And I say that as a pun, uh, but not a good one or one that makes people laugh. Uh, But yeah, some developers dream and some developers nightmare uh, all in one. And that is your Lake Las Vegas, your top water user in a time of drought. They also have a golf course out there, don't they? Just another city in the desert. David Figler, Scott Dickensheets, thank you for joining me this morning. Oh, pleasure to be here. It's always fun. Friday is fun day. I want to talk. I want every day to be Friday. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our lead producer is Sonia Cho Swanson, and our producer is Layla Muhammad. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets, and our hosts are me, Vogue Robinson, and David Fickler. Music is by OG Moose, All the Kimonos, Joey Lovato, and Storyblocks. We record this show on the traditional homelands of the new movie, The Southern Paiute People. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. Just get immersed in the culture. Uh, We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Take care.